Welcome once again to Art Fictions and also to this week's guest artist, Fiona Curran. Fiona Curran introduces us to Esther Kinsky's novel, Grove, A Field Guide. Published in 2020, it centres around a narrator whose life, meandering about the villages of Italy, is stilled by the contemplation of her partner's death, her father's life, and the contrasting reality of her own continuity. Just as the novel quietly champions everyday interactions in an ordinary life, so Fiona's art practice undulates across familiar landscapes to the applied arts and intimations of contemporary screen-gazing. Intimate experiences are overturned and recalibrated, while her every creation is permeated by her wonderful sense of colour. We see this in Fiona's most recent work, which was born of the idleness of lockdown and slow recovery from COVID. Let's bring her voice into the mix. Fiona Curran, welcome to Art Fictions. Thank you, Gillian. I'm very happy to be here. (laughs) I'm really happy to have read this book, so thank you very much for that. This is a quick summary of Grove, a field novel by Esther Kinsky. Published in 2020, Grove is a story of mourning in the Italian landscape. We begin by following the narrator as she journeys to Olivano on the outskirts of Rome, following the recent death of her partner, referred to only as M. For part two, she recalls the many travels throughout Italy with her father. Then there's a third segment, which is, we imagine, well, I imagined, a more recent trip she takes alone. The heart of the book is in all the detailed observations of mapping the villages of people, birds, trees, light, and so very many otherwise incidental sightings that make for an acutely observed environment and a rich interior life. That's what I got from it. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds great. (laughs) It's almost like there was nothing happening and something was happening all the time. The book felt like it was continually in movement. Yeah, that's a lovely way of putting it, I think, actually. On the one hand, it feels like this incredibly quiet book, I would describe it as, and a a slow sort of book. But I think, yeah, I think the way you just described it as something is always happening is is really nice. From these tiny observations to then this very kind of expansive sense of the passage of time, because she's constantly blending the past and, and her memories of childhood with the present. So there's this constant shifting and this very sort of fluid sense of time within it. So tell me, how did you come across the book? This is not an old favourite, though, is it? This is a new book for you. It is a new book. I think it's funny when you first asked me about it, uh, choosing a book. I mean, obviously, you start sort of going through the history of the books you've read and thinking about things that relate to your practice. But actually, in the end, I just thought it's been such an extraordinary year. And I really felt like I wanted to choose something that I'd read in this past year that had really resonated with me. It's published by Fitzcarraldo, and I've, I'm just completely seduced by <laughs> Fitzcarraldo's kind of Absolutely. covers, you know, and that their whole kind of approach to publishing and independent publishing as well, you know, supporting that. And, and I think I was looking at their catalogue and choosing some books to order. And that one just sort of felt like, oh, that sounds really intriguing. I, I love books where landscape is a really strong presence and is, is more than just a kind of backdrop 
but that actually becomes quite a central, almost like a character in the book. And I think in this book particularly, because really there aren't any other characters, there's just the unnamed narrator and then these kind of deceased people, her husband and her father. I read it during the first lockdown when I was recovering from COVID actually. So I was experiencing this extreme fatigue and I was sat in my garden reading it. And because of having been ill, I found myself reminiscing a lot. And having that same sort of almost that same experience of the past and memory kind of flooding into the present. So the book just really hit that note at just that moment in time. So I think it just felt like that was the right one to choose. It was a brilliant choice from my point of view. And in a funny way, it was slightly difficult to read, I felt, because it is a book that requires your dedication to be walking into the landscape with the narrator. And I find myself a bit jumpy during lockdown. Uh, maybe it's at the moment we're sort of getting towards the end of lockdown. So I really had to work at it. When you selected this book and it was from Fitzcarraldo, I also bought River. Have you read that by her? Yes. I didn't enjoy that as much, actually, I have to oh, say. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's a very different kind of book. I also ordered Bolt from the Blue, which was recommended just coincidentally by Lindsay Sears in a previous episode. So I went to town a little bit. Okay. So it's called Grove. And I kept thinking of it as Groove all the time. <laughs> And while Grove, you know, refers to some sort of assortment or clump of trees or something, I felt it was Groove because there was something of a sort of groove in the fluidity of the book. Mm. But also this idea of slowly, slowly, slowly etching away at something. And I think it's worth pointing out, it's not a sentimental book. You know, it's not like, oh, a season in Provence or, or something really, I suppose the shorthand word would be poetic. Or it is, I suppose, poetic, but more like contemporary poetry where there's not a stone unturned, really. It's very no. realistic about what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it is a poetic book, you're right. But at the same time, it's not romantic. A lot of the book is actually quite bleak. You know, I mean, obviously, it's about death, it's about grief. And it's this sense in which she's in this landscape, and she's looking for something, I suppose she's looking for, for something to console her in some kind of way. But much of the time, the landscape is just giving back nothing. The colour palette is incredible, actually, there's a lot yes. of kind of very, very grey, a lot of the time, there's fog, She's there in winter, places are closed up, people are moving around, you know, because they're cold and there's nobody really out. And so, so actually it's quite a sort of hostile space. And yet at the same time, it's punctuated by these phenomenally beautiful kind of descriptions through memory. When she thinks back to her childhood, her father was a kind of complete Italianophile. You know, he loved everything Italian. He used to drag them there on these family holidays. He was obviously quite cultured. He was interested in the art and the history and the archaeology. And so she starts to sort of relive that childhood through his eyes and some of his stories. And at those moments, you do get this incredibly beautiful kind of poetic sense of looking at Italy through that perhaps more traditional lens of its art and its culture and its history but I think what's interesting is she's trying to find that and it's quite elusive and it sort of surfaces and then disappears again I agree with you I think that description of it as a groove was really interesting like you said that sort of etching into something and that digging down almost like an archaeological sort of uncovering of these layers so yeah I, th I think there is this definite mixture of this bleakness and then this absolute beauty 
there's so much about the father that was interesting. But just going back to what you were saying before about trying to find something and not really being able to find it. I felt she was constantly on the edge of everything. And she was probably on edge emotionally, but everything seemed to be about the sort of outskirts. You know, she was in this place, which is on the outskirts of Rome. And the first chapter is premised by a one-page story of the religious lighting of candles for the living and the dead in a metal box. So on the left is the living, referred to as the Roman numeral seven, and on the right is the dead, referred to as Morty. And there's the village on the left and the cemetery on the right. You get the feeling that she's like a bridge in between the two. The mapping of the village is often a mapping that separate social classes and that comes up later with her father that he's from kind of the wrong side of town but it does look very beautiful when you stand in the right side of town and look back across it so there's all that viewing from different perspectives yeah I think that was something in the book that I really enjoyed actually that idea of different points of view and I'm sure we'll pick up on this in talking about my work but I think that that sense of those different viewpoints and shifting viewpoints is really important and also this sense of getting lost that's another thing that happens a lot in the book that she sets out on these journeys and she thinks she knows where she's going because she's got a bit of a plan from the viewpoint that she's had from the house she's staying in for example she can see the network of roads but then when she actually sets out either on foot or in a car to go there she gets completely lost (laughs) And, and it's this sense of disorientation and I think the idea of the threshold state in relation to this notion of grief is really interesting because I was thinking about that particularly obviously again over this last year in terms of the amount of grief that we're having to deal with collectively and also obviously individually I mean, I've experienced grief several times and I think there's there's a sense in which there are threshold states where your sense of your own identity kind of dissolves in some sort of way. And I think perhaps you could describe it as a sort of loss of the ego or something in, in that moment because you're exposed to something that's so beyond you that you you can't sort of keep hold of it I mean I suppose grief is one of those experiences love may be another one that sense of falling into love with somebody else and losing that sense of the boundaries of yourself and I think that those kind of experiences can also potentially come through an experience with art or with some sort of spiritual understanding or perhaps through music or through drugs or whatever you know they can be kind of induced but I think there's certain points in the journey of life you know when you are absolutely taken out of yourself into something beyond yourself so I think she's tapping into that through both her own experience of grief and actually trying to make sense of that whilst she's in the midst of it and the way in which the entire environment around her is reflecting exactly what you're talking about, that kind of movement in and out, that sense of trying to find a situation, but not being able to locate it and sort of searching for it. So, yeah, I think that's the kind of beauty of the book. It's incredibly sort of atmospheric in that kind of way. That searching for and not being able to find and getting confused is rather like Rebecca Solnitz, a field guide to getting Mm. lost, which I discussed with Hannah Luxton in another episode. And I thought it was quite accurate. And this comes up with her father as well. The idea that you could sort of be logical and in mourning, forget logic. It ain't going to help you in any way. And her father was very logical. In fact, he became a tour guide. But he did retain this love of mosaics, but he was very besotted and considered himself an expert on the colour blue and Fra Angelico, the painter. But he seemed to lose that along the way. Did you get a sense of that? 
I'm not sure, maybe I kind of didn't quite connect to that sense of the loss of that with him. I mean, I definitely remember those sections about the blue. And, and actually, again, I think that's something really interesting to pick up on because that's another thing in the book. There's this notion of a refrain and a kind of rhythm. So even though it has these three sort of distinct sections, she brings something up in one section and then it disappears. And then it sort of resurfaces in the next section in a slightly different kind of way. The blue thing I thought was so amazing because there's this section, well, there's three parts to the blue. There's one part, which is she tells this fantastic story about being given this necklace by her grandmother. Yes. And it's got a lapis lazuli stone on it. And at the same time, her sister is given a necklace, which has got a rose quartz stone on it. She's only seven. And at the time she receives the necklace, she's a bit disappointed because she really likes the rose quartz necklace much better. You know, so she's not very happy with the blue necklace. So she prefaces the story with this sense of disappointment. But then what happens is they go off on a trip to Italy. And then her father starts talking about blue in the Italian painters. And he's, he's really kind of talking about all the different kinds of blues and all the different places that these blues come from. So he's expanding this sense beyond the paintings to the landscape again and to the sense of the geology and where the actual pigments have come from. So it's quite an enticing story, you know, and you're sort of drawn into it. And then he starts talking about lapis lazuli, which, of course, is the most beautiful, seductive, amazing blue in the world. In fact, can I read a little bit? This? Uh, let me just find the place because I think this was just so lovely. OK, so he says, um, the extracted stones were sorted according to blue tones and thickness of gold veins and then powdered into a powder, a task completed with the utmost caution. For anyone who breathed in lapis lazuli powder would fall into a deep sleep from which he wouldn't awake for months. And never again for the rest of his life would he be happy, as he would think only of the incredible blues that he had seen in his dreams during the long sleep. So I thought this was really amazing. And you can imagine as a father telling her this story and then sort of seducing her with this poetic description of this incredible stone which she's got on this necklace, you know. So she suddenly then starts to quite like the necklace that she's been given and sort of becomes to see it as something a bit more precious. And then the blue comes up again in the mosaics. And then towards the very, very end of the book, she's in this museum. I'll just, can I just read the extract from that? Because it just links to it. Please do. Yeah. So in the mausoleum of Galapachidia, one was allowed to stay for three minutes only, according to the sign at the entrance. No one was there to enforce this. Perhaps the guards were hiding in a chamber less cold and damp. It might have been a precautionary measure concerned less with the fabricated reason, the complicated task of regulating humidity, and more with the fear that by staying too long, viewers might melt into this blue, lose the ground beneath their feet and wander weightlessly between the mosaics, ornaments, stars and birds until they had lost all sense of the earthly. After their shifts came to an end, the guards would then have the tiresome task of picking these visitors, inebriated with colour, out of the air and somewhere, protected from every blue, bring them back to their senses. That was a task no guard wanted to stoop to. <laughs> Oh, so I, yeah I just love this sense in which you know so that's almost three sections of the book uh, where this colour just kind of re-emerges in these different sorts of ways and um, I think she's very very clever at the way she does that and it, it goes back to what we were saying about it feeling like this kind of very slow quiet sort of book but actually it is really carefully constructed and, and cleverly sort of constructed in terms of the way the rhythm of it resurfaces throughout. Yeah and it does that thing with time as well, because the blue, it's not always beautiful. It's a warning as well, because that becomes the, I'm trying to remember exactly what she says, but something about her concern for the tour guide and his weak heart and his blue lips. Mm. And 
you know, she's very distracted by this, trying to listen to what he's saying. And then much later, we get her dad having a weak heart and also being a tour guide. Mm. And that mix up of people and time, because as soon as she raises her concern about her tour guide after her partner's death, I'm thinking that's because she understands something of death and she Mm. sees the warning sign. But then later you think, well, was it a warning sign from M who died or was it from her father? It's very much about this male lineage and these critical males in her life. And it's a really unusual thing, isn't it, to be writing about? Yeah, and I think I think you're right. I think it's also actually interesting that in a way she, she's perhaps understanding her father's death more through the death of her partner. I think that's an, an interesting thought, the way you're describing this almost blending of these two male figures through this experience of absence, which is another aspect of grief that, you know, it can happen at various points in your life, but it can also resurface through another grief. That's the point of it being such an intense experience, such an intense emotion. It doesn't have, you were talking about this idea of logic, it doesn't have a logical relationship to time either. Yeah, I mean, there's a saying that a person close to you doesn't die once, they die over and over again. And I think that's very much true. And it's also like a sort of, uh, speaking of your work, like a collage of experiences, because not only is there that sort of strange repetition, things uh, dissipating and then returning throughout the book, but it's also structured in those little short chapters which I love. So you're just constantly getting little glimpses of her experience or her memory. For instance, in the first section, you get a strip of chapters called Terrain, Journey, Village, Cemetery, Dying, Clouds, Heart. And it goes on and on like that, Mm. different places and different emotions and different objects. And they never quite end up being what you think they're going to be, this very straightforward title. I thought that was a great way to structure the book. Yeah, definitely. I thought so too. Then they they have that kind of relationship to the artworks as well in that sense that they have these distinct titles. So you feel absolutely like you're entering into something that exists in and of itself. And then in a way they are kind of self-contained. But again, there is this sense of the rhythm and things popping up again. But but they almost read like these very distinct little short pieces. And there's also the the fact of being a foreigner. She says at some point, something along the lines of, every day I wake up as a foreigner in this city. And she seems to identify with the other foreigners, the West African guys who were selling socks and <laughs> men's underpants and <laughs> fake sunglasses and stuff. She's on the bus with an Indian family and there's just hardly anybody who speaks Italian. What was your take on f- her foreignness? You, you initially think it's like a sense of alienation in that feeling of otherness and not quite fitting. And of course, all of that resonates with the way she's feeling out of joint with, I suppose, you know, her emotional situation. But I think it comes back to that sense of just, you know, in some way not quite fitting properly or, or being lost. But in this case, I think with this book, she's not really analysing that as a sense of kind of a cultural difference. She's using it almost as a metaphor, I think, for the, that emotional sense of dislocation uh, and wandering. I think there's a sense of wandering and aimlessness. I mean, because a lot of the people that she comes into contact with who are traditionally characterised as foreigners in the sense that they're not Italian natives, you know, you don't really get the sense that they have a real sense of purpose, that they're sort of 
they're slightly aimless figures. They're sort of wandering around in this landscape. They feel like they're drifting in some kind of way. And I think that that really reflects, again, her emotional sort of state. And also, again, this sense of the landscape itself as being in some way quite hostile, quite bleak, unwelcoming in the way that she's describing much of it. These kind of motorway service stations or empty ports or barren kind of landscapes full of rubbish. It's all of it. It isn't just the beautiful bits. And I think the feeling of the atmosphere of the place is very, very strong throughout the book as well. One of the places I once went to in Italy, it was actually on the way to somewhere else, but I ended up really loving it, was um, the port of Genoa. But because it was a port and it had its own unique history to it, it was just such a medley of different cultures. I thought it was so buzzing and alive and really exciting. Mm. This book reminded me of that. Just these people who ended up in this place and coexisted yeah. together. Yeah, and, and she definitely draws that out, I think, in that sense of even though it's a very unpopulated book, there is a sense of it having that kind of cultural cross-pollination. There's a lovely section where she's talking about the Etruscans and the Etruscan necropolis yes. and that sense of ancient history that comes through as well that's still very much a part of the landscape, but that is literally buried and then again resurfaces and then that's reflected in that fragmentation and the mosaics and the idea of the piecing together of all these different components that make the whole the whole place is somehow made up of all these different people and all these different histories. So there's something quite lovely about that. I mean, I also found the book really cinematic, actually. I think that was one of the things that really struck me when I first started reading yeah. it, that I instantly had this kind of visual, cinematic visual, you know, these long kind of vistas. I really love Antonioni's work. And actually, she does mention Antonioni in the book and, and Pasolini, in fact. Mm. And I think a lot of those kind of hinterland places and those desolate sort of spaces that she's talking about, particularly on the fringes of Rome, she does actually directly link to Pasolini as the book continues. One of my favourite films is actually an Antonioni film called Red Desert, which Monica Vitti stars in. And in that film, she stars as this, again, a very kind of alienated, isolated woman. And Antonio did this fantastic thing of painting the landscape. I mean, literally painting. He got people to paint some of the trees and the bushes and everything for intense, <laughs> sulfur-like sort of feeling of the industrial effluence from the factories and everything. And she's totally sort of experiencing this kind of psychological disease in relation to the, the landscape itself. And I think, you know, I mean, I love that film anyway, but I couldn't help but be reading that into the atmosphere of this book. There was also the Pasolini film. She and Em went to watch a film and it wasn't the Pasolini film that they meant to go and see. Right. And that was the last film that they'd seen together. It was quite a proleptic film, I suppose, in a way, because they ended up watching the African Arrestus Speaking of fragments, it's a film of tribal customs and rituals, and it was actually intended for another film. It's a strange sort of unfinished film that has no real place. Oh, that's right. So she, they'd gone to see the hawks and the sparrows. So that, um, again, it feels like a metaphor, doesn't it, for her, her life and her, her kind of loss. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Were there any other pieces that you wanted to call out? Uh, I mean, maybe the only other thing I was going to talk about was the birds, because the birds seem to be, again, a, a, an important repeating thing right the way through from the very first few pages, where she's talking about the bird song and noticing the birds and the birds being present or not present in the cemetery. I mean, there's this brilliant bit right at the beginning where she's talking about 
the birds should be in the cemetery. She's expecting to see this kind of variety of birds, but in fact, there's a, there's a mobile phone mast in the cemetery, which is sending out this horrendous kind of buzzing noise. So of course, all the birds are kind of keeping away from it. And also the trees that are growing there, you know, the classically the cypress trees that grow in Italian cemeteries, I think she describes them sort of painfully bending over away from this mast. But at the same time as she's describing yet again, this incredibly bleak sort of situation, she's then saying that actually, I did find birds further up the road away from the cemetery along the path. There were birds nesting in the hedges and everything. And then she, she also describes this lovely sound of the woodpecker. She never sees it, but she describes it as being ever present in the village. And also there's this beautiful section where she's talking about this mosaic ceiling. I mean, perhaps I could read that bit out. They're on a visit. Again, it's the middle section when she's remembering her childhood and they go to this uh, church with her father and he's talking about how mosaics are made. So she says, the mosaic spread out like a sky in gold and blue and green, full of birds in golden fields among floral ornaments. In one spot, I caught sight of a pair of red birds surrounded by white flowers, feeding its young in its nest. Whenever it was my turn to look through the opera glasses, I would search for this pair of birds, and each time I found it only with difficulty, but would discover instead four-legged mythical creatures, angels, and ultimately, at the bottom edge, a black cage placed over a blue bird. The bird clawed at the black grid with its orange feet and looked straight ahead, while other animals lined up as if in a procession. It weighed heavy in this domed sky of delight, and I couldn't fathom how the pair of birds related to this caged bird. Through the opera glasses, I could make out the countless unevenly shaped stones of the mosaic, and the way this brokenness disappeared when I looked back with the naked eye was yet another riddle. Despite the riddle and the sadness of the cage, on the last day, the mosaic dome spread a canopy of comfort above me, protecting me as I passed by the attractions, surrounded by people and entered the quiet district, where it acted as a charm against the sensation of my own oddness. So I think there again, you know, this this incredible kind of blending of all these different reference points. And then this sense in which there's this confusion over the birds being free, but also caged. And then how the mosaic itself, though, leaves her with this feeling, you know, of calmness and comfort in some kind of way. So, I, yeah, I think there's just such richness there, just in little passages like that. There's so much kind of going on. Yeah, when you were reading that out, we were saying just before that there was some sort of sense of poetry in the way that the book is composed, but it just reiterates how close to a sort of musical composition it is. It's incredible. And that sense of the fragmentary, and that's a nice way to sort of move on to your practice because the fragments of the whole is very much a part of your work. There's an opening dedication to the book, uh, which is a quote by Ludwig Wittgenstein, and uh, I'm just going to read that very quickly. Does it make sense to point to a clump of trees and ask, do you understand what this clump of trees says? In normal circumstances, no. But couldn't one express a sense by an arrangement of trees? Couldn't it be a code? <laughs> so that's the opening dedication to the book, and I thought, oh, that's Fiona's artwork. <laughs> Because I did think of the way that you create layers and they feel to be pointing towards a sense of something. And so when I'm looking at them, I can impose an idea on them and they can impose an idea on me. And so it's very much a two-way process. And did things come up for you quite, you know, obviously through the book about your practice? You know, I knew I was going to have this conversation with you. Obviously, I've gone back and read the book quite attentively. 
So I think once you do start to read it again with that sort of through that lens of the practice, it is quite interesting. I think there are these lovely uh, associations, I mean, which I didn't realise at first. I mean, I just selected it because I'd enjoyed it and it felt resonant of the time and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But of course, the minute you start sort of analysing it a bit more, you do think, oh, right, okay, yeah, mosaics, fragments, loss of perspective, the colour, the atmospheric, the landscape, you know, I mean, I think there are some really key sort of uh, reference points that definitely kind of link to my practice. I mean, I love that you've used that Wittgenstein grade, (laughs) like the sense of a a grove kind of thing through the collection. I think that is quite nice because I, I do use collage and assemblage quite a lot in my work. And often it is about, as you say, bringing those different components together. Mm. I have a mind that very much constellates things. I tend to draw references in and bring them together and assemble them or collage them in my head, you know. So, And I think in some ways she does that a bit in the book, but in a, perhaps a more formal way than first appears. I mean, in the way that we've been talking about it, you know, at first it, it feels very structureless, but actually the more attention you pay to it, the more you realise it's actually incredibly well constructed. And there are these kind of recurring moments and rhythms that come through it. And I would like to think that that's there in my work in terms of the way things are assembled and, and often because I recycle work. I think that's a lovely way to work because you have almost like an echo or a ghost or a vague sense of what the meaning was when you first made it. But then you also have this new meaning, which is nice. You can let something go. But somewhere in you is that original meaning, but just not in full volume. Fiona Curran, your work scales from the very small, like weavings that I can hold in my hand, to huge installations in the landscape and every other iteration of sizing in between. And the presentation of your work ranges from embroidery, stitching and weaving to paint on canvas, collage, fabric sampling and wooden structures which interact with their mostly outdoor environments, uh, although there's a very recent exception to that. You're often referencing natural forms, landscape fragments and historical botany, as well as patterns and materials from the decorative arts. There is embedded in the work ideas around time, planetary shifts, invisible algorithms and what is seen and what is seen on the screen. I'm sure there's so much more in terms of those references and they can just come out as we go along. But I'd like to talk about your work primarily to begin with through your current exhibition at Broadway Gallery in Letchworth City called Jump Cut Still Life. You can see it online at the moment, right? Yes, it's online at the Broadway Gallery and then hopefully will be open to the public to visit in person from mid-May. Fingers crossed. Well, so the show encompasses many of the things that you've been talking about, really. It it has a couple of small woven tapestries. It's got some quite large fabric collage pieces. It's got a very large fabric collage piece that's floor-based rather than hung on the wall. And then there is this uh, architectural, sculptural uh, painted structure that's uh, right in the centre of the gallery. So it it absolutely does what you said in terms of it's probably the first show for a long time that's really brought all of these different sort of uh, ways of working together into one space. And all of the work has been produced over the last year, actually, since the first lockdown. So interestingly, kind of coincides with this period that we've been talking about in relation to the book and the themes of the book. And the title itself, actually, Jump Cut Still Life, is very much linking to all of that. The jump cut is a film editing technique uh, that classically was used by the new wave filmmakers in the 1960s. And it's such an interesting editing technique that basically takes a sequential piece of footage 
and takes a section out of it in order to jump the narrative forward. But it does this in a way that really draws attention to the cut, if you like, to sort of almost draw attention to the false nature of the film. Anyway, the point of the jump cut that really interested me was this idea of time moving forward incredibly fast. And what happens in that edit? I just found myself reflecting on this idea of, yeah, but what, you know, what about that section that's taken out? What's in that section? What what do we lose in this jumping forward in this in this sense of acceleration? And I suppose for me, that's very much a kind of metaphor about technology and new technologies in particular as screen-based technologies and what they do to our perception and what they do to our sensory engagement with the natural world. So I think in terms of the last 12 months, particularly this idea of moving forward incredibly fast and at the same time feeling like we're all moving in slow motion. And and again, that sense of the weaving of memory and the present, because I think, you know, there's been more time almost perhaps to reflect for some of us. Yeah. So I think I really wanted in some way to explore those themes around that kind of strange temporal experience that we've been having through these works. I I feel like we've almost lost a year, really. I had a conversation with my brother at one point and he said, we should just write off 2020. So none of us have to age for a whole year. (laughs) (laughs) There is a sense of that kind of writing it off. But actually, I think there's been something quite enriching about it as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. In a weird way, that slowing down and that taking time and that having to be present rather than having to rush around being just really busy. It's been a kind of gift in a way. I mean, I, mm, I always mm. say this with a, a note of caution because I know there's lots of people out there who have not in any way been experiencing it in that way. But I wouldn't want to write it off. I think it's been an incredible year, actually. Yeah, I think for those of us who have got through it unscathed, you know, I've certainly learned things about myself. I realised that I can't juggle things to the sort of quality that I want to be able to get from them. I, I want to carry that forward, but... <laughs> I don't know if I will. I really want to be able to. But let's just come back to screens for a moment, because one of the things that I've always found really interesting is the way that we experience landscape quite a lot as an image, a concept, something that we see on the television, not something that we're actually in walking around. So tell me about your sense of looking at landscape through screens. Yeah, I think that is really interesting. And I think in some ways, I think that kind of reflects very much of contemporary life in an urban environment. You're incredibly removed from it. So you have to make an effort to actually engage with nature. In some ways, if you stop to reflect on that, how bizarre is that? I grew up in a kind of semi-rural environment. So I was outdoors all the time as a child and had a fairly feral kind of existence, I think. But that all kind of stopped at around the age of 10, 11, when we moved into cities. So the rest of my kind of adult life has been spent pretty much in that sort of environment until very recently when I moved out of London. And so I'm kind of much more engaged with the natural world now. And I think this past year has really brought that to the fore in terms of I thought I was really engaged and connected because I think about ecology I write about ecology you know I did my PhD on ecology but actually just being in it and listening to it and paying attention to it and looking at it and feeling it and letting it wash over you in terms of that sensory embodied engagement with it is so different than looking at it on a screen or even thinking about it it's been a kind of a sort of revelation in a way about this reconnection with this much more embodied response to the natural world and not to romanticize it obviously that's a, uh, again a detachment from it it's just perhaps a kind of recognition and this sense of sort of understanding it or pinning it down in some kind of way the experience is different I mean I'm finding it hard to articulate it precisely because it shouldn't and can't really be put into language and I think that maybe that's where 
making work and, and working in the way that I do with these kind of fragments, fragments of materials, fragments of colour, fragments of association, for me somehow tries to kind of feel a way towards that that is has a foot both in that camp of like the detachment and the screen-based sort of experience, but also an attempt to try and reconnect in some way, you know, beyond the optical, you know, it's the feeling of it on your skin, it's the sound, the kind of immersion in the sound of being out in, in uh, the landscape is incredible. And it's a sense that I think we completely forget when we're looking at images. It also makes me think of the idea of rhythms, and that's partly come up from the book and the sort of rhythm of the book. And also your compositions have a certain rhythm to them. And also one of the things that came about in preparation for this, because when I'm, when I'm researching for a podcast or for an article that I'm writing, I'll try and have my head in the artist's space, you know, somewhere on the periphery, obviously, quite like the narrator of the book. And so I start to see things that I won't have seen before. Thank goodness that's what art does to us. And one of the things was I was sitting in the garden having a coffee and I was watching a bee negotiate these little flowers or probably weeds in my garden and uh, I didn't realize how methodical they were they totally <laughs> know what they're doing surprise <laughs> surprise I don't know why I'm talking about this actually now that I think about it but um, <laughs> when you were talking I was thinking rhythm is also another one that you get when you're outside literally stomping through the landscape in some way. But that can also be a garden because you were saying to me when we talked before this discussion that you had just spent a lot more time in your garden in lockdown. Yeah, definitely. I mean, again, it began very much at first as convalescing from COVID. I was just exhausted and I couldn't really do much else. So I just kind of, and of course we had that extraordinary spring. But it's lovely what you've just described about the bee because I had the same experience. I, I, I've got one of those like old fashioned low slung deck chairs. So I was spending a lot of time just sitting in that and I was sort of drifting in and out of consciousness, I suppose. But of course, the level that you're at when you're sat in one of those deck chairs is very much at that level of the plant life. Mm, so yeah. suddenly this whole other world opened up to me completely. I mean, it was just exactly what you described about the bee coming in, insects appearing, you know, birds flitting about, doing their thing, talking, singing to one another, building their nests. Again, the resonance of the book with some of those descriptions, you know, I heard a woodpecker. I mean, just like her description in the book, I could hear this woodpecker. I never saw it. You know, that, that sort of tap, tap, tap on the tree as a constant sort of refrain throughout that spring, it was just amazing. And I think that's what I was trying to describe about the sensory, the sensory experience of being in that space, the, the wash of kind of color, the wash of light, the experience of the sound. There's something so phenomenally enriching about that experience, you know, to, to kind of then find a way almost to take that forward in some way, to take that back to the studio. I think that's what happened to me last spring was very much being in that space. <laughs> it was as simple as that. And I think that we've lost a sense of that, giving ourselves permission to just be. And I feel kind of quite strongly that this is something in terms of the bigger picture of kind of reconnecting with the natural world and ecology and actually thinking more seriously about what we're going to do about the crisis that we're in. These things kind of matter because we're not kind of waking up, we're not paying attention, we're not changing the way that we live. So somehow the narrative has to shift, the kind of discussion has to shift, the experience has to shift. Yeah, so I, th I think it, it surfaces then in the work in terms of these fragments. It's, it's almost that sense of trying in some, some way to find a way of, of having those experiences resonate within these collages that I'm producing or these structures that I'm making. Yeah. 
Speaking of structures, you've got a lot of rectangles in your compositions, and then you will have like a leafy motif. So they're really in contrast with one another, and yet there's a synergy between them. So can you kind of describe them a bit and also a little bit of background on where that leaf pattern comes from? I think, I mean, it's interesting because I think in my work, I, I often kind of move between these positions of uh, a sort of stripped back abstraction in the way, I mean, you know, almost like a hard edged abstraction. I've always been quite drawn to that through my love of colour and composition. I think just literally that kind of placing of one colour next to another is something I just take great pleasure in. So mm. there, there is a, there's this part of my practice that's simply about that kind of, you know, just positioning and, and the immersion in colour in some sort of way. But equally, I go through phases where I can work in that way, but then I, I then I can't. I have to bring something else kind of in. So there's often this sort of other dimension, this figurative reference point or this more representational kind of association, either through found image or through a painterly image or through a reference point. And the botanical references have been in my work since day one, I suppose, really, because I had this really strong interest in historical wallpapers and textiles. And the way that the decorative arts and the applied arts were used as a way of bringing the outside world in. So it's kind of what we've been talking about, really. We want this connection to nature, but we perhaps want it in quite a packaged, kind of sanitized sort of way. I think that way of working always really intrigued me, that sense in which, um, you know, throughout history and throughout cultures, there is this sense of bringing those decorative elements that reference the natural world into the interior and then the very recent kind of interest in botany over the last two years came from a project that I did up in the northeast, which was one of my outdoor commissions, which very specifically looked at botanical culture in the 18th century and specifically within that female botanical culture or early forms of what's been now called feminist science. And that taps into this much longer female tradition of association with plants and the natural world. So there's just this beautifully kind of rich history of female practice, really, that covers plants, gardening, botany, herbalism, design, applied arts. And I really love that sort of lineage. And, and, the, and again, the different formats that it kind of finds expression in and that unearthing of those female histories of expression and female histories of knowledge production, which have been so sort of overlooked or uh, ignored. I'm interested also in the fact that the leafy motif is often appears in white or in a creamy colour, you know, not necessarily white, mm. but in a pale colour. It foregrounds passion fabric or painted or combination of passion fabric and painted canvas. So it's also like a presence of absence in a way. What's your decision making there to mm. leave that it's not blank because it's so imbued with all sorts of ideas, but, you know, white, let's say. Yeah, yeah. I think it's very much that notion of loss and absence and the bleaching out. So I think all the things that we've been talking about really in terms of experience of the natural world and the diminishing of our sensory experience, I suppose, through this kind of screen technologies so that these white botanical kind of forms are ditched onto these really colourful fabric background. They, they sort of reference quilt making, but I don't call them quilts because I always feel that that's doing a disservice to the social and utilitarian history of quilt making. Mm. And they have this uh, bleached out kind of white presence of this botanical, uh, often a sort of weird hybrid form. I was looking at some of the botanical collections at Kew and the way in which historically plant forms were preserved. You know, they were pressed, basically, and then they were analysed and they were catalogued and they were, you know, sort of put into the archives kind of thing. And this idea that 
many, many of those specimens that exist in these botanical collections around the world now no longer exist in the real world. You know, they've gone, they're extinct. So I think there is definitely that sense of this disappearance, loss, extinction in relation to the bigger kind of themes of ecology, but also just, I suppose, the things that relate to the book as well about absence and memory and things coming into focus and things disappearing. And I don't want to kind of obviously pin them down too specifically to being about one thing. I think there's lots of associations there within no colour. We often think of colour in botany as being the floral kind of thing and the flowers as being the place where the, the heightened colour is. So in a way, I'm sort of playing with that by removing that from the botanical reference and putting it into the squares, into the coloured blocks. And I think, again, that links very much to the, the screen kind of idea and the pixelation of colour, the reduction of colour to components of colour rather than that more immersive sense of natural colour in some way. So speaking of fabric swatches and quilts and panels of colour, you've also created, would I call it a sculpture, an installation of coloured boards? That sounds so boring. It's <laughs> so not boring. It's absolutely exquisite. But that's a new move for you to create something so huge inside, right? Yeah, it is. And um, I think that really emerged again over this last year of having the time to sort of think. And I think also in response to the outdoor commissions, which I've done. And I was thinking about the fact that when I get these outdoor commissions and go off and kind of produce them, they're, they're always pretty much at quite a large scale. They tend to be temporary. And with this show at the Broadway Gallery in Letchworth, it's a big space. And it's also quite an awkward space because it has a strange long sort of L shape to it. So I, I really wanted to think about how I could sort of occupy that space or place things within the gallery that would create this different kind of feeling of moving through and moving around and the different sort of perspectives and viewpoints that you get from the outdoor kind of pieces. And again, it came out of the work that I was doing in the first lockdown when I wasn't really able to work very much at all. But in order just to keep things moving, I started making these very, very tiny kind of felt tip drawings. I mean, they literally were no more than A4 size, sometimes much smaller. And then I began to actually draw these blocks of colour and then cut them up and start collaging with them and then started building with them. So I was making these little models and it was such a, a nice process because it really took my mind and my imagination somewhere that was about this completely different scale, even though I was working on this tiny desktop scale. So I, I really wanted to kind of take that forward into the gallery and it just seemed like an obvious kind of thing to do. It also seems like the right sort of gallery space for you to work with, because as you say, the spaces are quite fragmented, the work is quite fragmented. I want to move on to your titles. Normally titles are all capitalised, whereas you have the capital letter only for the first word, especially in your more recent pieces. And some of the examples of that are like seeing fallen brightly away. Another one is I live by leaves and another one which is a title of one of your weavings, A Million Atoms of Soft Blue, mm -hmm. Electric Garden, Glide Above the Grass. And so these are more like snippets of poetry or like Japanese haikus. So what's the thinking there? Well, they actually often are snippets of poetry. I really love working with titles in that sort of associative way. And again, that sense in which they themselves can signify something in and of themselves without even seeing the work. I mean, even from being a young child, I always kept like notebooks with 
little quotes in from books that I'd read a lot of the time from songs actually and then you know sort of later in life when I got into expanding my reading and started to read things like poetry and you know listen to more diverse forms of music it's just something that's really stayed with me so I almost have a kind of store of titles that I collect and sometimes I remember where they came from and I could tell you specifically so a million atoms of soft blue for example is from Virginia Woolf's The Waves you know sometimes the titles you remember where they came from and you also remember the fact that the passage really relates to the thing that you're thinking about or the thing that you're making other times it's nowhere near as direct as that it's just simply a kind of feeling of oh this suits that piece of work it seems to fit it's so weird how pieces of work can evolve and actually become almost this fragment of text you know But I think, again, that goes back to my thought about my use of collage and association and fragmentation. I think that the titles in some way just just extend that associative relationship into language. So you were talking just now about pieces of work evolving, and I'd like to understand a little bit more about your studio practice. Your studio seems to be full of making and doing and playing and painting and canvas swatches and, you know, (laughs) fabrics and stitching and... Of course, the temptation is to ask, where do you start? But I was interested in that playfulness that you have in your studio. Are you playing with intent? Are you experimenting and it goes nowhere and you decide to drop it? Or how do you shift around all the things that you're doing in your studio? (laughs) It's such a good question. I'm not sure I can answer it. (laughs) I've always had a really strong studio practice in the sense that I need to be in a studio. As you said, I'm making all the time. But also I was thinking the other day about this and actually I spend a lot of time in the studio moving things around. (laughs) I thought if someone asked me to describe my studio practice, I think I would probably say, yeah, I move things around quite a lot because it is this idea of these components. I mean, yes, I create components. I might paint a surface. I might stitch a surface. I might weave something but until I start moving things around and piecing things together and then stepping back and looking at them and then living with them for a bit and then moving them around again well I I want to call it intuitive but obviously it's also I've been doing it for 20 years so it's more than intuitive Mm. somewhere there's some conscious kind of decision making going on but a lot a lot of it is just about that feeling of uh, resonance the sort of vibration of things and the way in which one thing will suddenly trigger a connection with something else and that excitement that you get from just seeing how something might work visually or how it might feel with materials. It's definitely so obviously material-based and yet your original study was philosophy in complete (laughs) contrast, so all in the head. Do you still place your research in philosophical ideas or are you aligned with anything in particular that you continue to explore or...? The answer to that is yes. I think philosophy, is it's been with me kind of right the way through. I mean, I, I studied it a long time ago now, but, it, but it's not like it finished at the end of a degree. You know, it's a bit like being an artist. It's the same thing. It's the lifelong interest and it's part of my life and the way that I think, the way I interpret the world, the way I kind of respond to things. But equally, I think what's really interesting is having studied it in an academic context, that gave me a fantastic foundation to then reach out from that, to explore ideas and thought in many, many different ways. So I think I referred earlier to this notion of embodiment. We also talked about it in relation to the book about this kind of felt experience, the sense of the non-logical, the resonance of the atmospheric, for example, and the not pinning down. So I think what's really interesting is that The language and the foundation that studying philosophy academically gave me has now enabled me to almost park that and to accept that the notion of abstract thought can come from many, many different places. 
there's this constant interest in how we make sense of the world, you know, how we build worlds, how we build cosmologies, how we make sense of things across many, many different kind of cultural reference points. But I suppose kind of more specifically, if you like, I did complete a PhD. And as part of that, I very much looked at the work of the French philosopher Paul Virilio. He was very much associated with being a philosopher of technology and notions of acceleration. So much of what I've been talking about really, I suppose, has been informed by his thinking. The, the thing I focused on particularly in my PhD was this idea of something he called grey ecology. And he sort of brings this in as a concept that links to the notion of green ecology, which is something that we would think of quite normally in terms of, you know, the green part of the environment. But the grey part that he talks about is our relationship to time and space as well as the material world. And he talks about how the new technologies in particular sort of compress time and space to such a way that they remove us from that direct experience. And so in some way that that is a reduction and a foreclosure of the living world. And so what sort of year was he alive and writing? Well, he, he only died quite recently, actually. I think 2017, maybe he died, 18. So he's been writing pretty much through the second half of the 20th century into the 21st. I suppose he was very much a phenomenologist at the beginning, uh, but he had this interesting background where he'd studied stained glass. And I think there's some oh, wow. suggestion that he might have worked with Matisse at some point. So he had this real interest in the visual and the material. And I think there's definitely this sense of a more spiritual kind of embodied relationship to the world. He does sound very interesting. Just coming back to your studio for a second. When I was in your studio, one of the things that really stood out to me, and I was very hesitant to make a comment about it at the time. So it's a <laughs> fake plant in the most yeah. gorgeous colour. And... That came from Your Sweetest Empire is to Please, which was a commission for Gibside uh, at Gateshead in 2018. And much like the mosaic, the narrator refers to where she identifies the caged birds. I felt that was like caged birds. Actually, you can probably explain that structurally better than I can, but it's an apex shape wooden construction and it's infilled with a whole lot of fake fauna. It's like putting a cage <laughs> yeah. over a Mardi Gras. Yeah, that's a lovely description of a Mardi Gras. I love that. Yeah, it, it is. I mean, it's actually based on something called the Wardian case, which was a plant transportation box from the 19th century. It is a, a lovely sort of simple structure. It looks a bit like a child's drawing of a house. You know, it's kind of got the gable roof. The roof is uh, slatted, so the plants inside can come out between the slats of the roof. And then at the side of it as well are these I, I would describe them as portholes. I think that's probably the best way to describe them for listeners to kind of get a sense of what they look like. But actually, obviously, on the original box, they were air holes to let the air circulate because these plant transportation boxes were used on board ships to ferry plants across the world. The roof was ori originally glazed uh, to prevent sea salt from getting in, and then the air holes were there to allow the air to circulate. So I took this form of the plant transportation box and scaled it up. So it's kind of 16 foot high or something like that, you know, so it's, it's a pretty large structure. And yeah, I filled it completely with these giant <laughs> painted uh, so-called exotic plants. So yeah, palm trees, mango trees, you know, things that were certainly not from British shores. And they're, they're painted these incredibly bright colours with gloss paint because they were outdoors for six months. All of this came from this story of the woman who lived at the house and her interest in botany and the research that I started to do, which then connected that up to this network of women who were 
exchanging plants and seeds. So she was living in the 18th century and it was also the time of exploration, of the beginning of the kind of big botanical collections around Europe, like Kew Gardens, etc. And they were kind of going off to these far-flung places, so to speak, and bringing these plants back. And there was this huge shift towards this new science of botany, which women were formally excluded from, but informally were practising. And the woman who lived at this house was married to somebody who basically shut all of that down and shut down all of her possibilities and sold off a lot of the collection and basically started to dismantle her estate. So that was the part of the story that I kind of really picked up on. Not the negative side of it, but more the positive side of it in terms of her interest in botany and this kind of development of ideas. So her name is Mary Eleanor Bowes, is that right? Yes. And the cage that holds her, I was going to say, but, you know, that holds these plants, they're still so alive and exciting. And the placement of that is quite important as well. Yes. So the estate Gibside is a National Trust property, but the original house, you know, we normally associate National Trust with kind of stately homes, but the actual original house is pretty derelict. So you can't visit the sort of stately home. But there is the remains of her original orangery, which is like the the original greenhouse, I suppose, where she was housing her plant collections. Mm. And she was really a pioneer for her time. She was the wealthiest woman in England at that time. But she came not from the traditional aristocracy, but from the new money, if you like, because her father was the coal industrialist for the Northeast. And took on the kind of Gibside estate and, and developed it and expanded it. And then she was his only child. He gave her this phenomenal education that would normally have been the preserve of a male child. Around the same time, Mary Wollstonecraft was writing her Vindication of the Rights of Woman. And within that text, she's talking about this association between women and flowers and how women are constantly referred to in these botanical terms as a form of denigration and as a form of undermining their intellectual abilities. And there's this beautiful passage in the book where she actually says, if we continue to treat women in this way, we're treating them uh, as nothing more than exotic plants in a hothouse. I'd already been researching these plant transportation boxes and greenhouses and plant preservation ideas. And and suddenly there was this other reference then towards this idea of actually women becoming plants. In my way of dealing with it, it was almost to give them back this exuberance and to give them back this flamboyance and to give them back this presence and to say there's this phenomenal history of women's understanding of plants that goes back, you know, millennia, um, and that has contributed to medicine, to, you know, science, to art, to decoration, you know, I mean, you name it, it's kind of been there as a thread that runs throughout history. And yet, it's just constantly sort of overlooked as a valid contribution. That's what the structure was. It was this idea of these plants being contained and caged, as you put it, but actually, they're breaking free, they're kind of, you know, they're coming out. They're absolutely bursting, that structure. And I think that people can read more about that on your research blog, Undisciplined Women. Yeah, there's a link. There's a short film on my website, which kind of gives a bit of an overview of the project. And there's a link to the blog, which also talks about uh, a lot to do with empire and plant collecting and uh, colonialism as well. Oh, okay, perfect. Speaking of Mardi Gras, I have these bizarre segues. I I swear I'm just making up as I go along. (laughs) But everything just falls into place so beautifully. That's because people tend to make sense, really, I suppose. (laughs) We come to your artistic references and influences and people that you're really interested in. And one of them is, well, he's based in Brazil, but I think he's actually Portuguese. And I'm going to have a go. You're probably going to have to correct me at pronouncing his name, which is Elio Oitesica. 
Yeah, that was brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, he was part of the Brazilian Tropicalia movement of the 1960s. It included a range of incredible artists such as Ligia Clark and uh, Ligia Pepe. Was she in that as well? Yeah, in fact, Ligia Clark, I wouldn't say she was really part of that. She was sort of on the periphery of it, I suppose. I mean, I think by the late 60s, she'd moved to Paris, possibly. But anyway, they all knew each other and they'd kind of come through together from the late 50s into the early 60s. Yeah, yeah, because they were in the neo-concrete movement or something or other. Mm, Yeah, that's right, the neo-concrete movement, where they were kind of painting more hard-edged abstractions. Oh, that that, that was very short-lived. But anyway... Why don't you tell me a bit more about your interest in Elio and the Tropicalia movement? And on the face of it, it looks like an amalgamation of different Brazilian traditions and cultures and foreign traditions and styles, because Brazil after the Second World War was a bit of a melting pot of all sorts of different cultures. But it was also a political movement as well. It's almost rebellion through celebration in a funny way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think I think that's the thing that really appeals to me about it and interests me in it. I mean, I think Otisika's work and Ligia Clark as well, the, the two of them, I think, are interesting reference points, mainly because of the way in which they explored so many different modes of practice. Their sense of moving through this kind of formal abstraction, starting with that and then moving off the canvas into these much more dynamic structural compositions at different scales, you know, those beautiful kind of small matchbox pieces that Elijah Clark made and, and also Otisika with his, I think they're called bol- bolides, which are, were basically these kind of box constructions which had these interactive components that you could open up and it did just the colour sense as well, just this phenomenal sort of colour sense and you can see this way in which he's investigating space and colour through the, all these different materials, moving then into cloth um, into the parangole, which are these kind of weird capes or tent-like structures that people could wear, and then bringing in the dance element because he was really involved in the samba schools. So just this kind of merging of all these different sort of reference points, I think, in, into the work is the thing that really inspires me. And then slightly later, the end of the 60s, you get the kind of tropicalia movement, which he was definitely a part of. And that, that was when Brazil had moved into a situation of uh, being under a military dictatorship. So it was a phenomenally oppressive situation to be in. Visual work, artistic work was being censored, people were being arrested. But I think as a a way of bonding to that oppression, to do it through this phenomenal kind of sensory, joyous celebration, like you were saying, of of all this kind of melting pot of of cultural reference points through the music and through the visual language that they were doing. It, It just seemed so so well brave obviously but also just beautiful in terms of a response and some of the things we've been talking about about ecology and what's happening environmentally we're dealing with this thing that's incredibly difficult how are we going to meet it how are we going to deal with this sense of loss this sense of grief this sense of change to to our planetary condition how are we going to deal with that and I think there's something about the idea of meeting it with something that is immersive and sensory and celebratory yeah, I mean, I don't yeah. know if that's making any sense, but that's kind of something about what their work symbolises, his work particularly symbolises for me. There's also another artist who you're interested in who came from another kind of new way of thinking from the Bauhaus, which is Gunther Stolzl. I mean, these, these people of colour, what we haven't talked about about your practice, and I did think I would leave it out largely because it's impossible to talk about, or I don't know how to talk about it in any kind of interesting way. But I do think of your colour palette that it sort of ranges from, you could say, heritage colours 
Now, whether they're heritage from Europe or Britain or whatever, it's not clear to me, but some sort of heritage colour scheme to absolutely zingy brights and the complete opposite of that. And they mm-hmm. sort of come together and they work together. And uh, which is like Gunther. We absolutely <laughs> love her work, don't we? You know, we, yeah. th- there's a sense that from the Bauhaus, there's Annie Albers and nobody else, but that's not true at all. No, and uh, Gunther was, I think she was the only female master of yeah. the Bauhaus. Yeah. And she was eventually pushed out because she's Jewish to appease the Nazis who closed the place anyway a couple of years after she was forced to resign. But uh, what is it about her work for you? I think it's the colour, really. I think it's the colour and the sort of exuberant way in which she uses the weaving process as almost like, again, a form of collage. Often it is a flat woven surface, but it doesn't look like it is. It looks like it could be pieced or collaged. It is just also that sense of, again, how pioneering she was. I mean, you know, as you say, Annie Albers has kind of dominated the narrative of, of women at the Bauhaus. You know, I mean, rightfully so. Of course, she deserves her place in history. But I think there's mm. other reasons why she's taken that position, partly because she left and travelled to the US and then worked at Black Mountain. But I think that Dotsel was her teacher. I'm always interested in these lineages and I'm always interested in looking a little bit further back. And I think that Dotsel is a little bit overlooked and I think she deserves her place in the sun. (laughs) Hopefully that will come. And we've been having all these fantastic retrospectives of these female kind of artists from that period recently. So I'm hoping that she might be up there next. Yeah, I think think her use of colour, her position as a teacher. I mean, I think, you know, teaching informs my life in a significant way and I think that way in which you as an artist and a teacher the the two things aren't separate of course they're part of who you are you know you have to kind of learn to balance those two aspects of the way that you work and I think that when I look at her and I think that she was there leading up this department as a woman at that time the only one and also training these incredible other women who then went on into the world to do these amazing things I think she's just a really great kind of figure. She arguably also ran the most successful, you know, what would you call it, facilities, departments, whatever, of the Bauhaus. So that's very telling. Yeah, textiles made the money. They did the commercial stuff and they brought in loads of money that kept the college going, you know. But of course, it was valued at the time to some extent, even though they were marginalised because the women were placed in the weaving workshop. They weren't really allowed into the other workshops. Yeah. But at the same time, again, that history then is denigrated as somehow, oh, well, they were commercial. Therefore, it wasn't as good as the rest of the, the guys who were doing the other work sort of thing. But, you know, it's like they kept the whole place running. But also so much of the Bauhaus is about design and is about the accessibility of design across the board for anybody. And that's what the weaving workshop and the textiles were able to achieve, which the other departments quite notably didn't achieve. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but those colour practitioners extend to Sonia Delerny, Raoul de Kayser, Mary Harmon. And there's also, I'm not sure how to say her name, Sophie Tolba Arp. And I didn't realise this, but she has an exhibition coming up at the Tate Modern. Yeah, later this year. (laughs) But one person who I'd like you to talk about, just because I had never heard of her, so I think it's always (laughs) interesting to introduce new people, is Anna Maria Garthwaite, an 18th century textile designer. How did you come across her? 
I came across her a long time ago, actually, from some work I was doing when I was on my MA. And I kept coming across these incredible floral designs from that period that were mostly used not so much in the interior textiles, but more on dress fabrics. And then when I started to kind of realise there was a certain style that kept coming up that I kept sort of being drawn to, I looked into it a bit more. And they were all coming from this one woman called Anna Maria Garthwaite, who was based in Spitalfields in London. That was the centre of the silk industry at that time. And again, incredible pioneering woman who was earning a living through doing this design work. There's a huge collection in the V&A, actually, in London. You can see the paper-based works and also some of the woven pieces. And they're just incredibly rich, complex floral designs in that sort of tradition of the applied arts practice. But I think it's really nice to kind of mention someone like that, because, of course, again, she would have been placed historically within a design tradition. But working as a woman at that time, she wouldn't have had the opportunity to go to an art academy and to become an artist in the traditional sense of a fine artist. So why should her sort of story be excluded? Because she managed to find this way of not only expressing herself artistically through this medium, but also earning a living for herself and her family. And they're just beautiful, rich, incredibly complex pieces of work, which I think stand up in their own right. I used a lot of references from her work in some very early kind of painting works that I did. And then interestingly, through that project that we've just been talking about that I did at Gibbside, her work came up again because I was looking at this link between women and flowers in the 18th century. And her life overlapped with Mary Ellen Bowes just briefly. I think it was about a 20 year period where they overlapped with one another. And, uh, you know, so you knew that that was part of that cultural landscape at that time. Mary Ellen Abos may very well have been wearing a silk dress that was designed by Anna Maria Garthwaite. Yeah, I love that idea that she might have been wearing one of her dresses. Let's just make that a fact. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So, Fiona, your jump cut still life at Broadway Gallery once again That runs till the 4th of July and it's online now and fingers crossed Thursday the 20th of May should open to the public. Mm -hmm. However, I'd also like to understand what other books you're reading now or over lockdown or... Well, I've got a few things on the go at the moment, uh, I think because it's quite hard to concentrate on single things right now. I'm reading a biography of the environmentalist Rachel Carson. Uh, which is written by Linda Lear, which I can highly recommend. That's a really amazing book. Another phenomenal woman. She's the woman who wrote uh, Silent Spring in the 1960s, which eventually led to the banning of DDT as a pesticide. It's a really great story. Um, So I'm reading that. And I'm also reading two journals by different women, one by Joanne Kiger, who's um, a beat poet and was really part of the the beat movement. Uh, But again, being a woman hasn't really kind of been recognized referenced as much in the history of that period Um, and she's got this great journal uh, it's called her India and Japan journals from the early 1960s where she was traveling with the other beat poet Gary Snyder who was her partner um, in India and Japan and um, it's quite a kind of interesting quite deadpan uh, sort of depiction of their travels but I, I quite like it just as an insight into a woman at that time working as a poet and her experience and then the other journal I'm reading is by the artist Anne Truitt that's called Daybook and she, she I, I love, she's another reference actually, I love her kind of sculptural and uh, abstract work. And this, I've only just started that, but it's, that's really beautiful kind of poetic uh, writing about the struggle of being an artist, a single mother, bringing up children, again, roughly around that period. So yeah, I've got those on the go. Yeah, I have uh, Anne Truitt's Daybook. I love her work. I love the book. 
So I, I'm right there with you. But we will have to leave it there. Fiona Curran, thank you so much for being on Art Fictions today. I've loved our conversation. Oh, thank you, Gillian. I've enjoyed it very much too. Thank you so much, listeners, and also thanks to today's guest artist, Fiona Curran. If you'd like to support the series, please subscribe and rate, both of which make a huge difference to access for other listeners. And as always, you can get in touch with me via my Art Fictions 2020 Instagram or my website, gilliannipe.co.uk. Happy reading till next time. And now that local lockdown is easing, I can also say at long last, happy viewing as well. I just miss that body expression. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'm someone I use my hands a lot when I'm talking, but you're right, on Zoom, I don't really do that because I'm, I'm kind of holding onto the table or I'm leaning or something. Yeah, in fact, Florence Peak had some work at Bossenbaum and mm. I was looking at them and just thought, please do a performance as soon as we get out of lockdown. <laughs> Talk to me about students teaching online. Weirdly, I do think there have been some more intimate kind of conversations and, you know, more openness. There's parts of it I enjoy. And also because I teach people from all over the world, that's the other thing that's been really amazing. Isn't it?